0: Thanks, Boomer. And it's such an important thing to remember that a church exists, not just to have a service together like this on a Saturday or Sunday, but even more so to support one another in the crucial jobs that we are given by God. And a huge one is raising kids, whether you're a kid or you have kids. It's just a crucial ingredient. So it's really important for us to know that we have people like Boomer and a lot of other people that are here to come alongside us in such a difficult and joyful but difficult journey. Awesome. Well, my name's Evan. I thought I was really nicely dressed tonight. Until I was walking downtown and came face-to-face with a bunch of teenagers dressed like movie stars. (laughs) Apparently prom not only makes them feel good about themselves, but makes the rest of us feel a little (laughs) underdressed. Oh well. As nice as it must feel, it's such an awkward thing to go through, right? (laughs) I'm glad those years are behind me. Awesome. Well, we've been going through a series uh, entitled The Character of God and the Propensity were the inclinations of man. We're in we're in week number 5. We've gone through about 500 years of Israelite history. And we started with them entering the land, where Moses was kind of handing it off to Joshua, went through Joshua taking the land into judges. Last week we looked at uh, the people denying God, rejecting him as king, and this week we're going to move into the anointed kings i right, look looking at Saul and David. It's going to be really Bible-heavy tonight. Just going to look at a lot of stuff in 1 Samuel. And my hope is that it kind of wets your desire to actually get into it. If you have not read through Judges or Samuels, it's, just, it's basically like a historical war-style novel. And it's just really, really good. Everybody knows about David and Goliath, but there's so many other interactions that he has that are just not only eye-opening and they can teach us a better way to live and who God is, but they're also entertaining. So hopefully after tonight, uh, if you haven't got in there, you'll get in there. Uh, I'm gonna take a moment and just still my mind and pray. Please join me. God, we are here because you are our priority. Uh, Please Give us what we need. Speak to us individually. Spirit, you have that power. You have that desire. Please make it happen. Give us what we need right here, right now. Amen. All right, so last week we looked at the people committing treason, the Israelites committing treason and rejecting God as their king. Instead of destroying a rebellious people, God grants Israel mercy and then gives them a human king. Not only does he show them mercy, but he also shows them grace. Now, those are two really common words in the Christian vernacular. It's really important to understand the difference. And so there's a little saying that I heard at one time that's always stuck with me. Mercy is when you do not get what you deserve. Grace is when you get, No, other way around. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve, punishment. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve, reward, blessing, even though you did not earn it. That makes sense? And so it's really important to hang on to that. We see mercy and grace continually throughout the Bible, and so if you can kind of keep track of the difference between the two. And so we see God giving them both mercy, not punishing them for their treason, but then he also pours grace upon them, and that's what we're going to see here with the king. So God will use the king to provide Israel, to provide for Israel and protect her against her enemies. He will also use the king to guide the people in their pursuit of him and their service to other people. The king is to lead his people in the ways that God has desired the nation of Israel to operate, to love God with every part of who they are, and to trust that God will give them what they need. As their king does this and encourages his people to do the same, God will pour his blessing upon his people. So God's going to use the king to lead his people into goodness. Now we get Saul. So when the people were crying out for a human king, they openly declared that they wanted him so they could be like the other nations. Because this was their desire, God gave them a king that fits the bill. Let's look at 1 Samuel 9, 1 and 2. It will be behind us, but if you've got your own Bible, go there as well. So First Samuel 9, 1 and 2, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, son of Abel, son of Zeor, son of Bechorah, son of Abath, a Benjamite, a man of wealth, wealthy man. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. All right, so it's basically like the rock, like who would not want the rock to be your king? It's like, yes, he is our man. And so God says, you, Saul, are are the one that the people asked for. His name in Hebrew means asked. Therefore, you are his king. You are their king. Now, but what's cool here is not only does God give them the one that they want, he equips Saul with what he needs to lead his people well. We see this in 1 Samuel 10, 9 and 10. We see that he is given a new heart and the spirit of God comes upon him. As he turned away to leave Samuel, that's is Saul, God gave him another heart and all the signs were fulfilled that day. When they were going from there to Gibeah, a band of prophets met him and the spirit of God possessed him and he fell into a prophetic frenzy along with them. Now a new a heart for the Israelite people was the, the center of who they were. It was their mind and their emotions, their willpower, it was like the core of who they are. So God infuses like a new sense of purpose and emotion and thought process into Saul. And then the spirit of God himself descends upon him. Back in the Old Testament, you see this a lot in the Judges. The spirit of God comes upon a man in order to give him the power to accomplish amazing feats. So two major things that God gives Saul right off the bat. And we also see that he's given a band of warriors who loves God. Chapter 10, verses 26. Saul also went home, also went to his home at Gibeah and with him went warriors whose hearts God had touched. So Saul is set up to do amazing things as a king, amazing things to be the king that God desires him to be. So that way he can lead the nation of Israel into the way that God wants him to be led. But just like every Christian, He was given free will and has a battle raging within him. Do I follow the spirit? He's got a new heart. He's got the spirit and the deeper motivations that God has placed within me. Or do I follow my own tendencies? The ones that are common in my culture, the ones that I see around me at all times. Unfortunately for Saul, he chooses to listen and to obey his desire to be liked by the people rather than to trust God and to follow his commands. I kind of want to read you through his choices and his demise. We're in 1 Samuel 15. This is where everything falls apart for Saul. And I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit. Verse 3. So Samuel gives these instructions to Saul. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. And do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. It's a heck of a statement. If you want to talk about the character of God in this verse, come talk to me afterwards. I know it's a big one. We just don't have time to get into it right now. So Saul is given this command to utterly destroy it. Verses seven through nine kind of shows what Saul does. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. He took King Agab of the Amalekites alive, but utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and of the cattle, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was valuable, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. So Saul rejects God's commands, and chooses to spare the king, and bring all the good stuff back with him. So Samuel, the prophet of God, shows up. Verse 12, Samuel rose in the early morning to meet Saul. Samuel was told, Saul went to Carmel, that's a mountain, where he set up a monument for himself. So you can kind of see what his fo- where his focus lies. And on returning, he passed down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to Saul, Saul said to him, May you be blessed by the Lord. I have carried out the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amicalites, they, blaming the people, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Skip ahead to verse 20. when. Samuel responds and then Saul responds again in verse 20. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But from the spoils, the, she- the people took sheep and cattle, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, here's the Lord's response. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to the voice of the Lord. Surely to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed the than the fat of rams. For rebellion is no less a sin than divination and stubbornness is like iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. So we see him Confessing, For I have transgressed the commandments of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. We see his motivation, fear of the people. He wanted to obey them. He wanted to be liked by them. Now, therefore, pray and pardon my sin and return with me so that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel says, heck no, I'm not returning with you. You have been rejected. You are twisting things to be in your favor. And then Saul continues in verse 30. I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So we want Samuel to return with him so that way the elders, the leaders of his people, will honor him. So we see so clearly Saul's motivation is to be liked by the people. It has nothing to do with wanting to obey God or to be restored to God. Because Saul decided to operate out of his deeper motivation to be accepted, he chose to reject God's plan for him. By walking away from God's guidance of how to operate as a king, Saul throws away an opportunity to do what his creator designed him to do. You know, as I was driving home from our property this morning, uh, an image popped into my head, and it's the idea that Saul was brought up to a mountain, and before him lay the entire land of Israel, just beauty. And it was the idea that God was showing you, this is what I'm giving you. It's incredible. I'm here to guide you. And Saul pulls out a pocket mirror and holds it in his hand and cannot look away. He's just staring at his own reflection. And the longer he stares at it, the more he thinks about his own thoughts, his own desires, his own needs. What I think is best And soon he can't even see what's behind it. He is so affixed upon himself and what will work best for him. But because of God's goodness and his desire to show Israel mercy, he sends Samuel to anoint the proper man to be Israel's king. So we're going to be in chapter 16, reading about David. Verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided my, for myself a king among his sons. And then verse six and on. When they came, he looked on Elab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. Elab was Jesse's oldest son. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see a mo- See as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinabada, and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shamma pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? He said, there remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. So we see that David is given the same essential components to being a king that God gave Saul. The spirit of the Lord, we saw that come upon him. In, verse, in chapter 13, verses 14, God describes David as a man after his own heart. So we know that God has already given him that heart. And if you read at the end of 2 Samuel, you'll see that David has mighty men, men that loved God, that were The surrounding him, supporting him. So David, just like Saul, is now set up to be the king that God had designed him to be. He is given what it takes to take on the great task that lay ahead of him and to do it well. But he is faced with the same battle that Saul was. Do I trust in the approval of people? Do I trust in my wealth? Do I trust in my army? Do I trust in my own personal strength? Or do I trust the almighty maker of heaven and earth? You know, after he's anointed, as we continue to read through here, we read about David choosing to trust God versus anything else. We all know the story of David and Goliath. Think about that, like a 20, 18-year-old man, young, going against a nine-foot, like war-seasoned man and he chooses to take him on because he trusts God. And there's so many other battles that we see that he should have lost, but he still walked into him trusting God. You know, when Saul is trying to hunt him down, instead of cutting off Saul's head and rightfully taking the throne, David holds back trusting that God kept Saul on the throne for a reason. You know, because he makes these choices to trust God instead of his own logic or his own emotion, he fully conquers the enemies in the land of Canaan. He expands the borders and he gives his people prosperity and peace, everything that the king was supposed to do. Now, how could a man who was given so many different things to trust in, fame, that's a big one, everybody loves you, you're handsome, all the women want you, the men want to be like you, physical and military power, the ability to conquer anything, how Could a man with this continually bring his trust back to God? And I was thinking through this for quite a while, and I asked my wife, and she answered it. He knows who God is. He chooses to trust in God instead of everything else because he understands who God is. I want to look at just a couple verses from some Psalms that kind of demonstrate this. Psalms 21 shows that he understands that the good he has comes from God alone. In your strength, the king rejoices, O Lord, and in your help, how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desires and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked for life and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your help. Splendor and majesty you bestow upon him. You bestow upon him blessings forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. You notice how many times he said that you gave, you brought, I asked and you gave, you bestowed. It's you is repeated over and over and over and over and over and everything good stems from God. David understood that all that he has that is good is from God. And then in Psalms 27, we see that he understands that the Lord is the one that protects him. In your strength, the king rejoices, O Lord, and in your help, how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desires and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. Again, back to that analogy that I presented with Saul standing on top of the mountain, just looking in the mirror. David's on that same spot where he has amazing things in front of him, things that he can accomplish through the help of God. And instead of reflecting, looking at his own reflection, I feel like he puts that mirror down, puts it in his back pocket. Every once in a while, David pulls that out and gets into trouble, but then he puts it back again and just absorbs what lies ahead of him and the goodness of God that has given it to him. You know, as Saul's days as a king continue, he becomes more and more consumed by his fear of David and his desire to destroy him. It just eats him up. It seems that he completely loses sight of the goodness of God and is swallowed up by his selfish misery to the point of committing suicide. And this is a person's life laid out right, in, right before us. But David Because he meditated on these principles, these truths of who God is and what he has done and will continue to do, regardless of if he was experiencing the good or the bad, he was able to bring his mind back to trusting God instead of prosperity or fear. When a person continually fights to bring his mind back to trusting God, he creates a foundational desire to seek God above all things. You know, one more verse out of Psalms 27. One thing I ask of the Lord, one thing that I will seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And a king who has so much wealth, so much power, the one thing he desires is to be in the presence of the Lord. You know, in these two men's lives, David and Saul, we see a clear contrast. Both are given opportunities to be used by God to do incredible things. But they end up taking very different paths. Much of their path was determined by who they chose to focus on. The one that they desired to bring glory to. For Saul, he chose to focus on himself. Think about that little mirror that eclipsed so much goodness. His desire for approval of the people stemmed from his desire to glorify himself, to live out of the philosophy that he was the one worthy of praise, that Saul was smart enough, strong enough, rich enough to accomplish everything that needed to be done. It was all about him. For David, though, his focus was on God it seems that he understood his weakness, his need to depend on God for the strength to do what he needed to do. So instead of seeking self-glorification, he glorified God. He declared and lived out of the understanding that God is the one who is worthy to be praised. Their experiences throughout life and their end point were night and day different because of who they chose to focus on, themselves or God. All right, now we can start looking a little bit more at ourselves. There's such a clear lesson laid out here with Saul and David, and I encourage you again to get in there and read it for yourself. This is the living word of God. It will speak truth to you. I promise you that. But we have all been created for a specific purpose. Every single one of you has been created for a specific purpose. I love the way Ephesians 2.10 puts it. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. You know, it may not be to be a king over a nation, but God has made you in a specific way with specific talents and passions. He has placed you in this time, in this place, so that you can accomplish specific purposes. This may seem a little bit too magical or fanciful, but you got to think God is sovereign. He's in control of everything, and he is the one that knit us together and put us onto planet Earth when he wanted us to be here. You know, your purposes may have to do with your family, with your friends, or with the stranger that you just happened to run into. They may have to do with your job or your hobbies. You have been given a certain number of days with your unique makeup because God desires to use you. Please try to grasp that. If you have cried out to the God of the Bible for salvation, then you have been anointed with this spirit. God himself resides in your heart. Remember, that's the center of your being, your emotions, your mind, your willpower. God himself is in there, guiding you, directing you, equipping you and empowering you to do amazing things. If you want to be surrounded by godly people that can help you and encourage you, that is what the purpose of church is for. We have been we have all been given, just like Saul and David, the opportunity to be used greatly by God to bring his goodness into the world. And just like Saul and David, we have a battle raging within us. The spirit versus the flesh. God versus our broken nature. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 puts it this way. Live by the spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit, and what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. So he describes this battle that is within every Christian. I would say every human being, regardless of if you're saved or not. That conviction to follow what is good versus to follow what is selfish. You know, both the flesh and the spirit are speaking into our minds and emotions, encouraging us to follow them down the road that they choose, and it is our choice which one we follow. You know, for the flesh, our broken nature, it's all about self-glorification, about doing what brings us the most glory, comfort, pleasure, security, whatever feels best, whatever we think is best in that moment. You know, we could give example after example. If you look back on your week, when your mind kind of is pushing you towards doing what is better for you, what's easier for you, what's more about you and not about other people, not about God. That's the flesh is trying to pull you away into your own selfishness. You know, I'll give you an example. It's simple. I had borrowed my father-in-law's skid loader last week to do some work on our property, and I forgot to make sure the tires were pumped up. And so when I was done with my hour or so of using it, I went to load it up on to the trailer, and I noticed that one of the tires had been de beaded. so it had no air, and it was just kind of like being all janky and moving around. It needed to be fixed. The plan was for me to drive that to my brother-in-law so he could use it. And on the way in, I felt the spirit saying, take it to a mechanic and get it fixed. Do it. Take it to the mechanic and get it fixed. But the other side of me was like, man, if you just drop it off to Linden, he won't even know it's broken. Soon his guys will point it out to him and say, oh, man, what did you do? Right? And I chose to go that route. I chose to allow it to slide because it was easier for me, and I didn't want to have to deal with it. You know, this stems from our belief system that we know what is best and that we live to bring ourselves satisfaction. It's when we are fully focused inward. I right? think about the mirror. Our eyes are fixed on that mirror that we are holding. No matter what is behind that mirror, no matter what the spirit was telling me to do, we are consumed with our own reflection and doing what we think is best for the man or the woman in that mirror. When we follow the flesh, we get what Romans or excuse me, Galatians five nineteen talks about: fornication not good, impurity, licentiousness, that's doing whatever you want even though you know you're saved, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, hatred, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and all these things, right, selfishness leads to what will destroy, but the other side of the battle is the spirit. And the spirit is all about glorifying God and doing what he directs us to do. So that night while I was sitting at home in my nice little comfortable bubble, I had more conviction than I felt in years that I needed to call Lyndon and tell him what I did. It was just like eating away at me. And I followed it. There was no other way that I, I could do it. It was just overwhelming. And that stemmed out of a belief that God is far wiser than I am that he is eternal and all-powerful and understands endlessly more about what is best for us. And my relationship with Lyndon, my brother-in-law, my desire to grow in that, my desire for integrity and honesty. You know, these are the times when we put that mirror down and we look beyond ourselves. As our eyes begin to adjust, we see how much more lies before us, beyond us, than just our simple reflection. When we follow the Spirit, we get what it says in Galatians 5.22. We get love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, man, everything that everybody wants in life are summed up in those nine things. It's what we all desire. And when we are willing to follow the Spirit, that is what we get. You know, the more that we listen and obey either our flesh Or the spirit, the more influence they gain over our mind and our emotions and the more impact they have on our lives. The road that the flesh leads us down is full of heartache and loss. Think about Saul and how he was consumed by his desire to destroy David so that he could get the recognition of the people. The road that the spirit directs us down is full of life and goodness. Think about David and everything he has. You know, a little walk away here to kind of put it more in your hands in order to follow the spirit we must pull ourselves from focusing inward to outward instead of being myopic nearsighted solely focused on ourselves we must begin looking out and looking up we must be honest with ourselves about our own brokenness and consequences that they cause for us and others, we must then take time on a regular basis to focus on God. Here's the walk away, straight application. We must take time on a regular basis to focus on God, to think about who he is. Man, he created everything. He allows the sun to rise, the rain to fall. He put breath in your lungs. He gave you today, he'll probably give you tomorrow, right? How powerful he is. His heart towards us. His desire is to give us the good life, the abundant life full of love, joy, peace, patience. He wants to pour those things upon us. And also what he will continue to do for us. And when we take the time to genuinely contemplate our creator, our savior, and our sustainer, he's all of those. Created us. He wants to save you, and he wants to give you what you need right here and right now to live this life well. When we take the time to focus on that, we begin, like David, to create a foundational desire to seek God regardless of what we are experiencing. You know, a quick Psalms, just 10 verses, Psalms 34, if you wouldn't mind. Sorry, Tessa, to put you on the spot. 34, no, no. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Look to him and be radiant so your faces shall never be ashamed. This poor soul cried and was heard by the Lord and was saved from every trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his holy ones, for those who fear him have no want. They lack nothing. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack new things. Lack no thing. You know, out of this mindset and the dependency on God that it creates, we will be used to bring God's goodness into this world. If you want to be fully alive and to live your life in the best way possible, it must stem from focusing on the one.